0: Paul's discussion here of the the greatness of God and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start reading in verse 6 and I don't, I don't think that's gonna be up there I don't know what we have up there but uh, you all have Bibles or phones and um, encourage you to open those we get into some of the just some of the thorny issues and yet some of the most precious issues uh, as we deal this morning with the, the sovereignty of God in election. And it's a truth that we um, really, really do well to get our arms around If we, we need to learn how to, to um, be comfortable with a God who is uh, beyond our understanding and be able to trust that He knows what He's about, even when we don't fully get it. And um, and the doctrine of election profoundly helps us with that. And the reason that's important for us is because we will come to circumstances in our life where we don't understand the ways of God. And many people leave off believing in God in those times because, because they don't understand God and they charge God to be wrong. Uh, they've, they've never learned how to simply be still and know that He is God. And that he knows what he's about. And the doctrine of election is a wonderful reminder and help to us in that. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. Um, We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18 for our message. I'm starting in verse 6, excuse me. So Paul is dealing with the issue here of how come the Jews have not come to faith? And um, has God's word failed? Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then our text this morning. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Father in heaven, we, we come this morning to this mountainous truth of your sovereignty. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and give us spiritual understanding so that we might understand the things that are given to us but recognize that the secret things belong to God and be content with that. Lord, so we ask for your help as I preach, as we listen, that we might see you in the glory of your being. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is exactly what Paul asks, is there, is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? I wonder if you've ever asked that question of yourself. I think most Christians at some point have. Maybe you experienced some heartache, some great loss, and, and it didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. I have to confess that this past summer, as Randy was dying of cancer, it didn't seem right to me that a man in his prime... A man uh, with his family still needing him, a man loved by so many, should be taken away just weeks after his 53rd birthday. And uh, some of you maybe are wrestling this morning with these sorts of things. Maybe God's given you a debilitating disease that you never expected. And um, maybe God hasn't blessed you with things. Maybe He's not blessed you with a marriage, a spouse, or a child, or a job. Uh, things that that most people enjoy, and, and yet God has not given that gift to you, that blessing to you and and you don 't know why and it doesn't, it doesn 't seem fair. I think most christians, if we 're honest, have that experience at some point in life we, we have deeply felt notions of justice, what is right and wrong, and how things ought to go and how things ought not to go, and what God should do and should not do and and that's what makes Romans 9 so necessary and so helpful because Romans 9, you see, helps us to recalibrate our vision of God, our understanding of God, our, our thoughts of God so that we can see Him as He really is and, and have a, an ability then to, to deal with the circumstances that God brings into our life, trusting that God knows what He's about and that in Christ he's about our good. This is a massive, critically important text. This is a a text that brings us face to face with a God who is not like us and does not do things the way we would do them. And a God who does not apologize for any of it, but rather invites us to see his glory. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Right? Wouldn't you expect a living God, a true God, wouldn't you expect Him to be inscrutable, incomprehensible? Wouldn't you, right? The gods of men make sense because they've been fashioned by hum, the human mind, but, but the God who is, there will be places where we're just beyond ourselves. We, right? we don't understand, and, and that's perfectly okay. That's what we should expect if God is God. If you were here last week, um, we remember, you might remember that Paul is dealing with uh, a historic reality that seems to challenge what uh, the Bible teaches about God. The Bible teaches that God is faithful, that not a, not a word of God drops to the ground without accomplishing the task for which it was sent, that, that God never lies, God is always faithful, always true, none of His promises fail, and yet... Paul is looking at the reality of massive Jewish rejection of the Jewish Messiah. And so the question is, has God's Word failed? I mean, God had promised the Israelites a Messiah, someone who would come to rescue them and to save them and to make them part of uh, His kingdom. And yet the Messiah came, and Jews are almost universally rejecting Him, and and have become the greatest persecutors of the church. So how do you make sense of that? Has God failed to deliver on His promises to Abraham and Abraham's children, Jews? And Paul's going to deal with that issue for these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Paul's initial response is, no, absolutely not. God's Word has not failed. And, And the reason is, Paul's first reason is because God never promised to save every blood relative of Abraham. It is not children of the flesh who are saved, but children of the promise. And so and, and for proof, Paul just goes right to uh, Abraham's own children, Ishmael and Isaac, and Abraham's grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. In both cases, uh, God chooses contrary to human wisdom, human wisdom would say that the oldest has the right to the blessing, and yet the blessing goes to the, the younger. And in both cases, Paul points out that God's election of one and not the other is unconditional. We call it unconditional election. If you remember your tulip, total depravity, unconditional election. Unconditional election just says what exactly what Paul says here, that God's Election to save is not based on anything in the person. And so Paul makes that point so clearly. When talking about Jacob and Esau, born of this, in, the, in, the, in the same womb, same father, um, and before they were born, apart from anything they had done, good or evil, God says the older will serve, the younger shall serve the older. No, the older shall serve the younger. And Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So we just have to take the text, right? What Paul is saying is that the ultimate bottom reason why Isaac and Jacob are chosen for salvation and Ishmael and Esau are left to condemnation, the bottom reason is rooted in and hidden in the sovereign will of God. Now, if you, if you correctly grasp that argument, Something within you will will say, "What? that doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair. One of the things that if you're talking with someone who's, uh, most American Christians, of course, do not believe this. Most American Christians uh, are Arminian, whether they realize it or not. They just believe that God, if there's such a thing as election, God elects people because he looks into the future and sees who will believe and he elects them. Uh, most, most American Christians probably wouldn't know how to define election at all, but if they do, that's, that's going to be the position. Well, that's, that's just not Paul's position. And if that were true, you see, no one would say that's not fair to them. No one would say that's not fair to the Armenian position. And so, and so if Paul is saying, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, Paul is responding to the charge he's getting in his day and the charge that you'll still hear today this doesn't sound fair. doesn't sound fair. It sounds, it sounds like injustice. I mean, how could Esau help it that he was not chosen? If, he was, if, he, if, if the choice was made before he was born, well, how could he help it? And, and, and later on, we'll, in fact, we'll find next week, Lord willing, uh, how can God find fault? I mean, how can, how can we ascribe fault to Esau in this? But this morning, is it, is it fair? Well, Paul takes the challenge head-on, and he first shows us God's justice in expressing His mercy. That's verses 15 and 16. And then God's justice in expressing His judgment, verse 17 and 18. And the conclusion will be there's no injustice anywhere in the picture. Let's look first then at God's justice and mercy, verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice uh, what Paul does when he's faced with this challenge concerning the seeming injustice of God. Paul doesn't um, go to philosophical arguments, Uh, Paul doesn't appeal to unique apostolic insight. He doesn't say, yeah, I know it looks like that, but listen, I'm I'm an apostle. I've had private conversations with Jesus. Let let me tell you the the scoop here. It's not what he does. What does he do? Let's open our Bible. What has God actually said? How how has God revealed himself in in the Bible? That's where he goes. And and not only that, he, he goes to... The most authoritative voice, at least for Jews in the Bible, what did God say to Moses? And, and Paul moves again. We've been talking about how if you want to make an emphasis, emphasize something in the Greek language, you put it at the front, and Paul puts to Moses at the front. What did God say to Moses? Jews, this is your man. What did God say to him? And what God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, that's a direct quote from Exodus 33. If I could just set the scene there, if you remember, God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt by his own mighty hand. Um, they've, been, they've been to Mount Sinai where God gave the law to Moses, but even as God was giving his law, establishing his covenant with the Israelites, they were already rebelling. They, they, they had Aaron lead them, and they... Uh, took their gold and they fashioned a golden calf and began worshiping using that golden calf. Complete violation of the covenant before, it even the, before the ink was dry. And, and God and Moses then engage in this lengthy conversation because God says, just step aside. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to make a new nation out of you. And then, and then God says, well, tell you what, I'll send you and them with the, my angel, but I'm not going And Moses is interceding with God on behalf of Israel. And in that context, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me what you're really like. Show me the the deepest nature in that sense of of your being. And and God responds by saying, "You, you cannot see my face because no one can see my face and live. But I will make my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now notice several things about that. <clears throat> First, divine election is a manifestation of God's goodness. At least that's what God thinks it is. God says, I will show my goodness, I'll pass I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So, God thinks it's a manifestation of His goodness. If it sounds other than that to you, if it sounds unfair and unjust to you, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you should just consider that God could be right here and, and let's stop to consider why would God say that election is a manifestation of His goodness? Because that's, that's what God says. Secondly, divine election is a manifestation of God's freedom, His sovereign freedom. So He proclaims His name to Moses, the Lord The name of God stands for His being. It's God revealing Himself. It's not just a moniker that's attached to Him. It's a a manifestation of of who He is, what He's like. And, And part of the essence, then, of God being God, God being the Lord, is His prerogative, His perfect, sovereign freedom to show mercy to whomever he decides to show mercy and to have compassion on whomever he decides to have compassion. God insists that he has this right, and of course he does. You could illustrate it easily just in human terms. Imagine someone had a million dollars and he decided to disperse that among his 10 closest friends. And, um, And some of his other friends might feel left out. They might feel, well, man, I've known you for... More years than that guy. And don't you remember when, you know, your wife was sick and I did this and did. Uh, it's not fair. See, some of his other friends might feel like they've been mistreated in some way. It's not fair. But but see, of course, there's no there's no injustice in it. Uh, they don't have any right to that money. He's not giving it out on the basis of merit. He's giving it out on the basis of just his own sovereign, his own free choice. It's his money. He gets to disperse it to whomever he will. And, and no one can say it's not fair. He doesn't owe anyone anything. Well, in an in a infinitely greater sense, this is true of God. He's, he's God. He doesn't, he doesn't owe anybody anything. You see, part of the essence of God's glory is that he is no man's debtor. He's not in debt to people. And so he is perfectly free to act as he wishes in keeping with his own purposes, and he's not obligated to explain himself. That's just the reality of God. And so there's no injustice in God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy. Boys and girls, uh, imagine you had a situation, which I'm sure very rarely happens, but you misbehaved. But it wasn't just you, it was you and your sister. And, um, and mom came, and she found out, and um, she sent Your sister to her room? No, she sent you to your room, and she invited your sister to some cookies and milk. Uh, What would you say? Everybody, that's not fair. Right? That's not fair. Is there injustice in your mom in that? There's no injustice. There's two categories, right? Uh, You got justice... You got what you deserved. Your sister got mercy. She got what she didn't deserve. Nobody got injustice, right? Nobody got injustice, and that's Paul's argument here. Some get justice. Some get grace. Nobody gets injustice. And so he says, verse sixteen. So it, it salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. And then he shows God's justice in judgment, verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says, again, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So here we have this really stunning statement that shows us that God acts... In all things according to his own will and for the fulfillment of his own purposes. So notice, notice what the text says. Uh, It says that God raised up Pharaoh and had a specific purpose in doing so. Pharaoh did not exist because his his parents had a child. Pharaoh did not reign simply because he was the next in line. Pharaoh was not great uh, because Egypt had a lot of money and a great and, and, and a great military all of those things are true. Those are the things that people see. And if you would ask people, uh, what is the cause of Pharaoh's existence and his greatness? Those are the things that people would point to. But you see, God pulls back the curtain between earth and heaven, and, and shows us what's actually taking place. God raised up Pharaoh. That's what it says. And God did so in order that Pharaoh might accomplish precisely what God purposed for the manifestation of his own divine glory. God's ever. Now, what was God's sovereign purpose for Pharaoh? Why did God raise him up? Well, the Bible tells us. God says that I might show my power in you and that my name might be be proclaimed in all the earth. So so God's purpose for Pharaoh was that Pharaoh would be the canvas on which God would display His power to the whole world and magnify His name in all the earth. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened through the 10 plagues. Right, where um, Pharaoh was oppressing the people of God. He was having the young babies thrown into the Nile, the, the young male babies. Um, he, was, he was cruelly, cruelly oppressing them, um, using God's people for his own glory. And, and so God brings the plagues. you got the bloody Nile, and then you got the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the hail and the darkness and, and finally death. And each plague, you see, was not just a devastating natural event. Each plague was clearly, directly from the hand of God and a devastating denunciation of the Egyptian gods. That was a fun study when we did that some years back. Every plague is a, is a, is a denunciation of some Egyptian god. God. You see, the God of creation is mocking and dismantling the false gods of men as he destroys Pharaoh and delivers his people. So, the God of heaven, you see, is proclaiming his name. He's manifesting his name throughout the world through this. If you want to know what the underlying purpose of creation is, this is it, right? This is it. That God might manifest his glory and make his name known throughout the world, that the, that the world might know without a shadow of a doubt. That's, that's, that's why things happen. That's, what, that's God's ultimate purpose in this world. And, I, and, I, and again, I know that, that, that there are things that happen that are devastatingly painful and, and excruciating and heartbreaking. I, I, I understand that. But, but, but God, as God, wants us to see that if none of it is random and that there's, there's a, there is a purpose underneath and that purpose will be fulfilled and for that we can, we can give thanks. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's just, that's just, a, just a flat out statement of sovereignty. God does as he wills. However, however, it doesn't resolve the issue Emotionally. In fact, many would say that this just feels like cold random determinism. It it sounds like God capriciously and randomly selects some for salvation and others for damnation and we just have to accept it because God is God and God gets to do whatever he wants to do. And even if you can logically conceive that or or concede that emotionally, it it, it doesn't fix it. It doesn't really help. And, And your heart will still be hard towards God. And and, and you'll still have hard questions. How can God really, right, send Esau to the fire of eternal hell just because he wasn't elected? I mean, that's the question. Let's just get it on the table. How can God justly send people to everlasting hell just because they didn't get elected? Is that right? Does that sound fair? You see, this is precisely why people consider the doctrine of election to be its own revolting house of horrors, and most American Christians shudder at the thought of Calvinism. This can't possibly be what God is like. But before we dismiss what Paul is really saying, let's make sure we understand what he's saying, because the truth here really is infinitely precious. First, let's just ask the question, what does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because what people hear when they read that is that God uh, noticed this man just doing his normal right life, not a perfect man, but, but just, you know, by and large, innocent man, and, and God hardens his heart. God acts evilly upon Pharaoh, and, and, and that's not fair. <laughs> But you see, that, that can't be true, that God is not acting upon an innocent person here. because God isn't creating evil, because the Bible says that God cannot be the author of sin. And if you read the book of Exodus, if you read the story, you realize that sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and other times it says that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Exodus 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go. Then Exodus 8, 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So so you see here both the reality both of divine sovereignty and human agency. Pharaoh is not an innocent victim of divine determinism. Pharaoh is an acting agent making conscious choices every time. Why does Pharaoh choose what he does? Why does he choose to resist God? Why does he choose to oppress the people of God? The answer, because he wanted to. Because his heart was evil. Because in his heart, he hates the living God. Okay? He's not an innocent victim. He's not an innocent man at all. He deeply, truly hates the God of Israel and and the people of the God of Israel. Uh, He's allied with the devil himself. And so God judges Pharaoh... By leaving Pharaoh to the evil of his own heart. When the Bible talks about God hardening his heart, all God needs to do is remove his restraining hand. It's all he needs to do. The reason the world is not um, utter chaos and and a hellish experience right now is because because God restrains sin. But, But you'll find there's times in the Bible that God removes that restraining hand. You see that in the book of Romans, right? People people rebel against God. They they sin against God. They don't honor Him as God or give thanks to God. And so God hands them over. Okay. Hands them over. And people plunge themselves into even further sin. Well, that's that's what God is doing. So God judges Pharaoh by hardening Pharaoh's heart, leaving Her- removing his restraining hand so that, so that Pharaoh will not listen to Moses and he will not let the people go and he will continue to resist the command of God even though he sees with his own eyes the power of God and he will finally be justly condemned. There is no injustice in any of it. Who could say that God is being unjust in regards to Pharaoh? Now, of course, we might think, well, yeah, but that's Pharaoh. It's not, that's not me. It's not, that's not human race. Well, actually, it's the human race. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we wanted to. We're opposed to God by nature because we're sons of Adam. And that's why, you see, when the Bible talks about divine election towards salvation, towards reprobation, towards condemnation, it talks about God hardening, giving people over to... And when it talks about a divine election to salvation, it talks about mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, why does it use those words? Well, because, because God is responding to stubborn, sinful, rebellious, lost sinners. And he would be perfectly just to do with every single member of the human race what he did to Pharaoh. Just let you go. He'd be perfectly just. There wouldn't be a single person that could complain of, of injustice in it. But God says, I will show mercy and grace and compassion to some and rescue them out of their rebellion against God. That's the Apostle Paul, he knows what he's talking about. He is like exhibit A. This is the guy that was persecuting Christians, putting them to death, thinking he was doing the will of God, and he's angrily on his way to Damascus to to, to, uh, oppose God, to oppose Christ, to crush out the church, and suddenly, there's a blinding light from heaven. He's blown off his horse, and a voice says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul is brought... To Damascus, a completely different man. And God calls him to be his ambassador to the Gentiles. So, what, so why, why did God save Paul? Because he chose to. And through Paul, he determined his purpose was to magnify his name among the nations, to magnify the glory of his grace through all the Gentile world. Why did God save you? Well, you have to say it's not because of anything in me. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, By nature you were dead in sin, objects of God's wrath, but God, being rich in what? Mercy. Yep. God being rich in mercy made you, dead person, alive together with Christ Jesus. It is by what you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. Not of yourself. That's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace you've been saved. Friends, let me ask you another question. What did God's grace and mercy to you cost? What did it cost? Well, it cost the life, the death of his son. So the God who sovereignly elects chose to save some knowing that this would cost his own dear son his life. And not, and not just crucified and suffering all the agony of that, but, but this would cost his son damnation. That, that Jesus would bear divine wrath, alienation from God due to our sin. So you see, we don't, we don't want to come close to charging God with being arbitrary when it comes to election, not when it costs him his son. If if you're going to charge God with being unfair, you need to do it at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you need to stand there and see the Son crucified for you when you were dead in sin and a rebel against God and bearing all the wrath of God to your sin. You need to stand there and look that Jesus in the face and then say it's not fair. You see, the the cross doesn't answer every question. There are things that we won't know. The secret things do belong to God. But it does answer this question. Is God unfair? No, by no means. Not in a million years. Not when he elects at the cost of his son. And when we look at the circumstances of our life, is God unfair? No, he's not unfair not just because we deserve one thing, it's, it, it's, it's, it's deeper than that. Somehow, God loved us so much, he gave his own son Jesus Christ for us and, 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 and has promised to do good to us in every event and so even in the most excruciating and devastatingly painful events, somehow those truths are still true. And God doesn't say I'm taking away this blessing or I'm not giving you this other blessing because you don't deserve it. He never says that, we don't deserve anything. God says, trust me, trust me. I gave you my son, Jesus Christ. I am the sovereign God who accomplishes all things according to my purpose, for my glory, for your good. And one day, one day, every question is going to be resolved either because it will be answered or because we'll realize it was a foolish question. And so when it comes to the doctrine of divine election, our call is just to worship. Let's pray together. Oh God, I thank you that you are God. I thank you that you're not like us. I thank you that your purposes are so far above us. And yet, Lord, I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us so that we might understand and love you and worship you. God, it breaks our heart to see people who are lost, who choose not to see the manifestation, the revelation of yourself you've given in creation and and so many even having heard the gospel to turn away. It breaks our heart. And, Lord, we do plead for them that you'd be gracious, and thank you, O oh God, that you are a missionary. God, it is your, it's your intent to save the lost. And as you've been gracious to us, we pray that you'd be gracious to so many others, that you would open blind eyes and, and transform dead hearts, just like you did with us, and that you might glorify the greatness of your grace in a magnificent way in our day, But Father, I pray that we would also then humbly submit to you, to your purposes, even when we don't understand, even when it's it's devastatingly hard. But may we trust that because the cross stands, we don't need to worry if you're being arbitrary. And if you've purchased our eternal redemption by the blood of your Son, We can have confidence that your purposes are are good and true. And so, Lord God, I just pray that you would draw us then to worship you, to bow our, our knee before you, to acknowledge that you and you alone are God, and to marvel at the grace you've shown to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing how sweet... And awesome is the place with Christ within the doors.